It's that time again. It's ASGCA Insights, the official podcast of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And now, from our studios in beautiful Brookfield, Wisconsin, it's your host, Mark Whitney. Welcome to ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. Joining me today is the president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Jason Straka. Jason is a principal with Fry Straka Global Golf Course Design, working alongside his business partner and fellow ASGCA member, Dana Fry. Jason, thank you for joining me today. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Uh, there's a lot to get to, Jason, but I want to begin where, where you begin. Every company website has an About Us page. Uh, and when you visit frystrike.com, which everybody should do, on the About page, immediately you include information on environmental expertise. It's like the first thing that comes up after that opening introductory paragraph. There are a lot of aspects of golf course architecture. Why is it important to you that discussion of the environment be so front and center? Mark, for me, it really began when I was young. Uh, the uh, environmental aspect was something that I really cared about because I spent so much time fishing uh, and skiing and canoeing and wilderness camping, and that was um, such a, a big part of my upbringing. And so when I started to play golf and enjoyed that aspect of the outdoors, it really became natural to marry the two of them. Uh, I spent, uh, oh gosh, I'd say five or six wilderness trips with my family and became enamored with the, the natural environment. Uh, and then, you know, of course, you have golf, which is a part of that environment, but part of it's also designed and built. And I really enjoyed the artistic aspect of it. And I really thought about merging the two of them. And so it was really started as a young, at a young age for me. And you grew up in Ohio, where most of these outdoor excursions with family, whether it was fishing, any, anything else, were those in Ohio or were, tra were you traveling around? We traveled around all over the place. I mean, so we did a lot of wilderness trips up to northern Minnesota and Canada. Some of the listeners might be familiar with Quetico Provincial Park or the Boundary Waters. Fairly easy, accessible from the east coast of the United States and eastern Canada. But we used to take a lot of canoe trips throughout Pennsylvania uh, in other states, uh, we would do skiing in Vermont and out west. So, I mean, all aspects of outdoor recreation, you know, were very much ingrained into, you know, into my childhood, my upbringing, and then all the way through my, you know, collegiate career. And staying on the envir environmental topic for, for another moment, there are countless projects that we could look at that illustrate your commitment uh, to the environment. One that's been noticed in the golf community quite, uh, quite a bit in recent years is your work at Camelback Golf Club out in Arizona. So can you provide a bit of a snapshot on what you walked into there, the work that was done, and, and the benefits that it's showing now several years on from an environmental standpoint? Very special project uh, in the regard to that golf course and that hotel complex are still owned by Marriott Corporation, the Marriott family. So Mr. Marriott used to uh, come out to the golf course every once in a while for a tour while it was under construction. Uh, so that was always a treat. Every spring, he would bring his family, the Marriott family, big extended family, uh, for their uh, spring break. And so they would spend time at the resort. And, of course, uh, at the time, uh, Camelback Inn was Five Diamond Resort, so very well known, and he wanted the golf courses to match. So when we got involved and started to do the overall planning uh, for what was then known as Indian Bend, uh, it was uh, you know, not extremely uh, well kept, uh, didn't have the greatest reputation, 
you know, of course, Marriott knew that, understood that, and they really wanted to bring their golf course facilities up to the level of the inn. Uh, they got, of course, a buy-in from staff, and they had some dedicated, uh, very dedicated staff. And when we started in on the planning process, I'll give you a couple of four examples. At the time, they were managing roughly 200 acres of Bermuda grass. That doesn't go very well, <laughs> right, in the Scottsdale, uh, you know, Sonoran Desert environment. Uh, and so part of our charge was obviously to reduce, you know, the, that footprint. And so we went all the way down to less than 90 acres. Uh, but then the question is, you're getting rid of that grass, and you know, what do you do with that space then? Uh, and so they were in a significant floodplain, and a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? It's you know, a floodplain in the middle of the Sonoran Desert. But, of course, you get these desert washes. And every time you would get monsoon rains, as they're known in Arizona, and whether it was either on the golf course or even up in the mountains, the entire golf course uh, would flood. And so, I mean, I, to the point where I had even watched kids that would surf mattresses down the middle <laughs> of the desert wash. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it was actually, it was very well designed uh, with the Army Corps of Engineers as part of the team. And so uh, it became, what do you do then with, you know, these non-turf areas? And so we started to really study uh, the sort of high desert area uh, of what would survive in this particular wash because it was a really interesting microclimate and so we created an entire desert palette of grasses and wildflowers and of course some cacti uh, and that's and it was all planted unbelievably from seed and if you would go there today it's amazing you see these trees which are 30 and 40 feet high and cacti and still the wildflowers and grasses and of course you've got all sorts of critters that love it there uh, and it's now named Ambiente, which is, of course, Spanish for environment. Pretty special, uh, to, to say the least. We've spoken uh, with a number of architects on the podcast, and they all come to this industry from different paths. Uh, some started out uh, as golfers, the great and the hope to have been great. Um, the others who doodled golf hole designs on their notebooks while they were should, should have been concentrating on math. How did you come to the game initially, and what was the path that, that got you to, to architecture? So I started playing when I was roughly five or six years old, introduced uh, by my father and uh, other family members, and I came from a very big golfing family. Uh, I was decent as a junior, you know, enough to win a few tournaments here and there. Uh, you know, played four years in high school, uh, tried to play many years in, in college, and just realized that that was a whole different level. Uh, of competition and of course then with your studies it was even more difficult at least for me personally uh, but I really then I, I love the sport I fell in love with it uh, but I also love the design aspect um, of anything and so for a while I debated whether I was uh, interested in studying building architecture uh, and then understood then what landscape architecture uh, meant and how that worked and how that really was a uh, focus then, you know, sort of a window into the opportunity of designing golf courses. And so to me, then it just became a very uh, natural marrying of the two in between golf and landscape architecture and figured out that I can be really creative, uh, which is something I loved. And then also with the sport that I loved. Did that, that creativity, and I'm thinking in terms of the, the, that path toward landscape architecture, at least at one point, and your love of the outdoors and the environment, that those two married up pretty well, didn't they? 
Uh, very much so. You know, that was, I think, the thing that I sort of steered away from building architecture with is because, again, that was more of that built environment. And while I love the creativity of it, I didn't love the actual built environment. You know, I wanted to get my hands dirty and I love studying trees and grass and, and then the, even just the whole horticulture part of it. Uh, and so I think that that's what's so interesting about golf course architecture in itself is that, yes, there's its engineering uh, and its drainage and irrigation and all these other components we talk about. But at the end of the day, you know, it's about agronomy. It's about a living environment, which I think is so cool. And with all the talk of, of outdoors and hiking and critters and everything that goes along with it, uh, you are no stranger to a classroom. Uh, either. Uh, first, obviously, as a student, but then as a lecturer, uh, you look at your bio, Cornell's on there, Purdue, Idaho, Ohio State, uh, just some of the schools that you've worked with. Uh, why is that aspect of, of the professional world so important to you? Uh, two things, Mark. I, first off is that my father was an educator for, I think, 38 years. And so watching him and what it meant to mentor students and bring them up into the profession and just have an impact on their lives was something special, you know, that I just, I lived it every day, right? So, I mean, people always remember a special teacher here or there, but, you know, that teacher, uh, you know, was my father. So that was a gift that I was given, you know, at the time without even really knowing it. Uh, and then, um, you know, the, the second aspect of it is, is that so many people helped me in my career. When I got to Cornell, uh, you know, I had Tom Doak and Gil Hands and Jim Urbina uh, helping me uh, with a six credit studio class and you know they were really my sort of first mentors my really look into golf course architecture uh, and they took time out of their busy schedule I didn't get paid to do it uh, but you know that was a lot of time on their part and you, know, you start to think about those things about how you can have an impact on other people and what a difference it makes in their lives and then of course you know you fast forward to you know so many people too many people that can can't possibly list here now, but, you know, the Dr. Norm Hummels and the Michael Herdsons and the Dana Fries and, you know, and the list goes on and on and on from a professional aspect of it. Uh, and it's just, I wanted to make sure that of what everybody, the gifts that everybody has given to me that I want to give back in the same way. Tom Doak, Yul Hans, Jim Urbina, I'd be interested in seeing what the course evaluation looked like that, that you filled out on those, <laughs> on those folks. I can actually remember that, uh, come to think of it, because I'll never forget uh, Jim Urbina. Jim, I love you. But we got finally to the 14th hole of my six. I mean, this was an entire semester's worth of work at an Ivy League university. So you can imagine it was intense, and they kept it intense. And he said, finally, we got to the 14th hole, and there's a golf hole I would be interested in building. <laughs> so it took 14 holes <laughs> to get there. You, you mentioned a number of names that I want to come back to, uh, specifically Mike Hurdson and Dana Fry. Uh, the introduction into the professional realm of golf course architecture, the, the, the meeting, the marriage with Mike that began, and then the evolution. So, uh, you know, as my graduate professor, I had a fellow named Dr. Uh, Norm Hummel. And Norm was considered, you know, one of the brightest soil scientists, if not the brightest in the industry. Helped write the USGA green specifications at one time. Of course, had his own testing laboratory for uh, greens construction and bunker construction. And uh, he took me under his wing, uh, and we used to do different uh, agronomic research 
part of it was environmental research too. So, I mean, we used to go out and build, for example, putting greens and different types of soil construction. Uh, and then we would put, of course, the water and fertilizer and pesticides on the top of it and then capture what came out the bottom to see not only which golf green performed the best, but which was the best from an environmental standpoint. So at least impact on the environment. And so I started with that part of you know, my, my educational background. At that time, Norm started to write a class, a professional class on golf green construction with Michael Herdson. And so Norm one day said, we're gonna, you're gonna miss class. And I said, where are we going? And he said, we're gonna drive up to Rochester and go to Oak Hill. He said, so I'm gonna teach this new class with Mike Herdson uh, for the New York State Turfgrass Association. And that was our first class, or his first class with Mike. And of course, they taught it at GIS for many, many years. And so that's, I was maybe 19 at the time when I met Mike. And to this day, he would joke and he would say, you know, I would give you this sort of list of things to do. You know, you're gonna be a golf course architect, you gotta do all of these things. Because I figured I'd never hear from you again. And he said, and you call like in six months, okay, Mike, I've done all of that. You know, what's next? And he says, and it just kept going on and on and on. Uh, and so it got to the point where then I graduated, but I stayed at Cornell and I got my master's uh, in agronomy and environmental design. And Mike came through Cornell again to meet with Norm. And I said, hey, Mike, I says, I, you know, I have this master's thesis that I need to do. I really would like to do some sort of environmental golf course thesis. And he said, well, it's interesting you bring that up because he said, we we're just starting a real world project called Widow's Walk, which was the first environmental demonstration golf course designed and built in North America. My design thesis or my thesis for my master's project became the design of Widow's Walk Golf Course. So, and then of course there were many universities that did research out of Widow's Walk. So that was, but mine was the first. And that was my, that was my introduction and lead into Mike. And eventually you find yourself back in Ohio and back uh, working out of a fairly famous office there in Columbus. Uh, very true. So I went uh, to work for a guy named Chip McDonald uh, at the time. And so he does a lot of golf course contracting and, and design build work on the East Coast. And that's where my wife Heather is from. So we were living in, in Virginia and then in Maryland for a couple of years. And Mike called and they had an opportunity and he says, are you, you know, interested in moving back to Ohio, which is where all my family was from now, not my wife's, but my family. And of course I'm a Midwestern boy. And so I wanted to move back to the Midwest, but I had to convince my, you know, soon to be wife at the time. And so I remember, cause we went and, and visited with Mike and the staff and Dana. And uh, I remember from playing Muirfield village when I was probably 16 or 17 years old in different tournaments. And so I remember the joke in my family is that Heather wasn't feeling very well that day and she put her seat back in the car. I didn't know Columbus all that well other than Muirfield Village. So for like two hours, I drove around Muirfield Village and I said, see, Heather, I said, all of Columbus looks just like this. You know, do you think you can live here? And she goes, I think I can handle this. And you know, now it's been almost 30 years later and we still live in Dublin <laughs> in that same location. <laughs> uh the then the skill set that you were able to develop, and I think it's, it's important for folks, especially today, uh, to remember what it was like 20 and 30 years ago in an office. And there were a handful of them that existed among ASGCA members where there was an individual, and it wasn't just Mike, it was Jack Kidwell before Mike, uh, that then had this roster of talent that you were you had to be feeding off of each other. And it wasn't just Dana, there were others. 
we had an incredible office of extremely talented designers. Uh, you know, of course, learning from Mike on the technical and environmental side of things, and then just operating a company and how he goes about his not only his business but just his personal life. You know, as a mentor, you know, there was of course in my lifetime nobody that had a bigger influence on me. You know, per perhaps other than or equal to, I should say, than, than Dana. And what was interesting is that you know Dana's background very different than Mike's is what. Uh, really made our company then and our current company, you know, as strong as it is, is that Dana is uh, just a genius when it comes, you know, to to art. Uh, and so for the first two or three years, you know, I knew that. I knew that I had some design talent on in the fieldwork side of it, but not nearly as, you know, so as Dana. And so I wanted to observe, observe and absorb as much as I could. And so for the first two, three years, I traveled incessantly with Dana, uh, you know, to try and learn as much of that aspect as I could while still supporting, you know, of course, our home office. Uh, but, you know, of course, we have Bill Kerman, who still works with our company, uh, and he started working there, and I believe it was 1989, and David Welchel, uh, you know, we had so many uh, you know, other talented uh, people and support staff that came through. Uh, and of course, there was even uh, Warren Henderson at the time who designed uh, Arcadia Bluffs, for example, and it came through our office and you know, many, many talented designers. And, uh, you know, if you're smart, you try and take the best out of everybody, um, you know, and trying to incorporate that into what you do professionally. Just to shift gears just a little bit off of that, uh, you hear professional athletes talk all the time about the first time as a young player that they walk into the locker room or the first time that they step on the field and, and oh, gosh, I actually belong here. Go back to your first day at GCA annual meeting. Uh, what, was, what was your feeling walking into that? Was there anybody in the room that you really wanted to meet or connect with over the course of that couple of days? What, uh, the, what did young Jason go through there? You know, uh, it was interesting, though, and I'll tell you what, is um, my first annual meeting wasn't when I was a member, though. And so uh, it was actually in Columbus, Ohio, and we hosted one of our big events um, the evening. We should say that Mike and Dana did at the time because I wasn't a member, but our office did. And so we had all the members come into the office uh, for a big barbecue after golf one day and I had an opportunity that a lot of the members had actually invited me to go out and play golf and so I remember being out at Muirfield Village and uh, Jack Nicholas was there and he was telling everybody about the, the golf course and the design of it but I just remember that instance you know being so welcoming and talking to so many people you know of course it was in the community that I lived in uh, but you know I remember vividly having Jack describe how the course came about, you know, what was so special and nuanced about it, and then having all of those members in our office and, uh, and just having them around and being so jovial and welcoming. But that was really my first meeting. Uh, and a uh, funny, uh, funny anecdote uh, was that, uh, of course, everybody knows that Mike Hurdson is one of the biggest golf memorabilia collectors, and he would collect anything and everything golf. One of my favorite things is that in our uh, in our wonderful remodeled office, he had a signed portrait. It was uh, an adver advertisement uh, from Pete Dye, and then Pete had signed it to Mike, and it says, "Hey, Mike, keep this in the back of your shop, Pete." And so Mike, in his uh, typical sense of humor, he actually put it into the 
back bowels of the men's room. <laughs> and I'll never forget that Pete Dye came storming out of the men's room with the portrait in hand saying, where is that mic at? Why is my sign piece all the way in the back of the men's room? <laughs> so those, those are the... Those are the things that I remember from my first unofficial ASGCA meeting. We all play the game because we enjoy the game, and some of us play it more competitively than others. Uh, I want to finish up with you by asking about uh, perhaps the most uh, the, the most important and competitive uh, golf event that takes place every year, and that's the Straker Cup. What, what's the history behind it, and just how competitive does this event get? Uh, it's extremely competitive now. I mean, this is like the Stanley Cup of golf here. So we had been, my family and I had been talking about it. Again, when I said a big family, we come from well over 200 aunts, uncles, cousins, second, third cousins. I'm not even sure how all that works. But we all knew each other growing up and played golf with one another. And, of course, we're extremely competitive on the golf course uh, as well. And so uh, my cousin Dan and I had this idea that, you know, we really should uh, have a, an event that became our really family reunion every year and we ended up at the fourth of july weekend and the reason was is that that was the weekend that i got married and so the very first straka cup was actually played during my wedding weekend at cornell university's golf course so fitting because on robert trent jones golf course at cornell university and that was the first uh first annual straka cup and now we've been at it for over 26 years now and we've never missed one, even through you know the, the best and the worst of years. Uh, but it got to the point right now where we've got family that comes in from California, from Georgia, from Texas. Uh, I can, I'm, I'm going to forget other states too, but you can imagine. So again, they're coming from all corners of the country, really, uh, to play in this event. We even do a Calcutta uh, beforehand, and so. We ended up uh, we ended up betting on other people who, who we think are going to do well, and of course uh, because my cousin and I we sort of got the ball rolling, so we are quote the committee, and so we're the ones who uh, develop all of the handicaps. So if you have an official handicap, that's fine, you keep that. But not everybody has a real handicap, so they start lobbying the two of us about mm, six weeks before the Straka Cup hits, so that they can get their handicap up. And so that all becomes a, a whole lot of fun. But, you know, it's a great way. You know, it, it's been gifted so much by golf. And, you know, that's something that's incredibly special to me because, you know, some of this family now you may only see during that one weekend. Uh, but it's the golf is the glue that keeps us all together. Uh, and that's, you know, I wish that for, for everybody. My guest has been ASGCA President Jason Straka. Jason, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. And that concludes this episode of ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. You can find past episodes of this podcast and more information about golf course architecture at ASGCA.org or download insights from Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Thanks for listening, and until next time, so long.